Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Catherine Heyman talks with Sarah Armstrong about her memoir, Fury, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello, my name's Sarah Armstrong. I'm a writer based near Byron Bay. I live on the Arapal country of the Bundjalung people, and I'm really delighted to be speaking to Catherine Heyman today. Catherine's on Gadigal country. I've admired her writing for a long time, but I have to say I really, really love her latest book, the memoir titled Fury. So very happy to have the chance to ask her some questions about it. Catherine's written six acclaimed novels. She's written radio plays and stage plays, and she's won and been nominated for many prestigious literary awards. She's an honorary professor of humanities at the University of Newcastle, and she's taught at Oxford Uni. She's also the founder of the Australian Writers Mentoring Program, which matches established writers with upcoming writers. So she's a very experienced teacher of writing too. And I'm hoping we'll have some time for me to ask her some questions around craft specifically to do with writing memoir. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for being part of this special podcast for the Byron Writers Festival. Thank you, Sarah. Start by asking you, because you've written six novels till now, um, did you always have the intention to one day write a memoir about this period in your life? I did not. Um, I did not have the intention to write a memoir. I think I I just never, you know, people talk about being a memoirist, um, you know, Mary Carr as a memoirist. That seemed to me to be a different brand of of writer, a different brand of person, perhaps, from the brand of person I saw myself as being. Now, that said, I always intended to write about this period. I intended to write about this period even as I was living it, even as I was living it with no evidence or sense that I had any uh, potential or promise in my life that would, would make me think that I could become a writer, that would make me think I could publish books, that would make me think anyone would read my books. So in spite of all of that overwhelming lack of evidence, I believed at the time I would write about this period. It took me a very long time. I did, just didn't know how I would write it. So I think at the when I first began writing as a young playwright, I kind of thought, oh, maybe I can write a play of this time. I knew that the time, I knew that the events around it were kind of grand and um, they had a sort of big arc. I understood that from very early on, but I couldn't figure out how to craft it into a play. And then later when I started writing novels, 
um, I couldn't figure out how to write it as a novel. And every so often I'd talk to my partner about it and kind of say, you know, I, I, these were the things that happened. I'd tell him these little stories and he'd say, oh, you know, you really need to write that book. And I would say, yes, but I just, I don't know what the, I kind of don't know. This is a conversation I have when, I've, when I'm teaching sometimes, you know, I don't know what is at the centre of it. Because it took me that many years to understand that what was at the centre of it was my own transformation. To understand that what was at the centre of it was the making, literally, of me. So I sort of understood, I had experienced that, I'd lived it, but I didn't really understand that that's what it was about in story terms um, until, until much, much later. So yes, I knew I would write about it, but it I, I, the, the, the moment that I realised, oh, oh, I, I think I'm writing about this without the veil of fiction, because I don't need the veil of fiction in this story, it's kind of there presented to me. Um, and I think that was part of what I'd struggled. I've been trying to make it into a novel, you know, trying to kind of create these sort of larger than life characters who already were there larger than life. Once you add an extra sort of larger than life element, then you end up with sort of melodrama or kind of clowns, you know, um, traipsing around on a boat. So yeah, the moment that I kind of removed that, um, you know, as as um, Paul Saul of um, Tarsus would say, you know, remove the the scales from my eyes. There was a oh, okay, this is what I'm writing. It's it's straight up memoir because there is plenty plenty of drama <laughs> in it. I mean, in fact, there's it's it's a story of a very difficult and painful time in your life. It's essentially the story of when after a traumatic sexual assault, you run away and spend time as a deckhand on a fishing trawler in northern Queensland. And I guess that makes me wonder how it was to revisit those days or, as you put it in the book, to inhabit your own skin back then. Was that painful? You know, what's really interesting is that as I was writing it, no, it wasn't painful at all. It was interesting. Um, it was sometimes fun. Um, it was, you know, I was curious about the time. I actually loved revisiting some of those people, being with them again in my, it felt like I was with them. I mean, particularly the person who's, who I call, I have changed most people's names. So the person that I call Carl, the first mate on the um, trawler, to call him up actually felt like a really beautiful gift. He gave me a lot, that young boy, young man, I suppose. He was on the cusp of manhood. Um, so that just felt like a gift. It was only when I came back to it, you know, when the, the time that I, not even editing it, not even, you know, going through to do the copy edits. It was sort of, I was still in that state of, oh, this is interesting. Okay, let's go. When I read the audiobook so I was the I read the audiobook myself and then I thought oh this is a lot that was a lot to live through and I did when I read the audiobook I had to stop twice once on the first day and I just because I, I just somehow hadn't quite I thought I was prepared but I hadn't 
I hadn't come at this book as a reader, you know. So yeah, the first day there was this, I started reading the what that early scene, which is quite one of the most confronting scenes, I think happens right at the beginning of the book or very early on in the book. And when I read that scene, I, I had to sort of stop and leave the studio. And then on the last day where there was another, um, there's sort of two really difficult scenes, I guess, uh, top and tail the book in a way. Um, and I had to stop then as well and, and take a little bit more of a moment. And uh, yeah, the very dear audio, audio engineer really did not know what to do with, <laughs> with, with my sudden kind of, I'm just going to need a moment. Um, but apart from that, it, it, you would think it would have been difficult, but um, I also wanted to lean into and celebrate the adventure and the the muscle building. That's what that's what it felt to me that this was a story about, you know, joy, adventure, finding strength. Um, that didn't feel traumatizing, you know, the opposite. Did write the act of writing it give you new understandings about that period? Or do you feel like you'd already come to those understandings and you're just laying it down? I think, to be honest, I had come to those understandings, most of them. Um, I don't know that I could have written it if I were not, if I had not come to, to that place um, where there was a sort of integration. What it did do, though, is... You know, in the book, I'm called Casey because that was my name then. I was known as Casey until, you know, not long after that period. So I had a different name. And for most of my adult life, I have sort of spoken about this before period as if I really was a different person. I really did draw a very thick line under that period. It's, I think, one of the reasons I left the country. Well, I left, you know, I, I, I left New South Wales when I was 18, 19, and I did not come back for over 20 years. So I think that kind of, this is a different person, we do not speak of her. What it did do was integrate and, and gave me a really profound sense of, one, the things that I really value and celebrate in myself now, they were there already. They were, I was building them then, and perhaps they were already there, you know, in, 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 even when I was little, when I was a tacker. Um, and two, that that person who I had effectively been almost contemptuous of, I think, the before person as I had it, you know, that, that I think I bought the story without quite owning it. In my after life, I bought this story that, you know, she was a bit useless. You know, I think I would say to people, oh, you wouldn't have recognised me as a, you know, before I was, I was just, you know, I couldn't achieve anything. And actually going back and going, wow, kid, you really did okay. You really pulled something out of the bag. And thank you because you made everything else possible for me. So it was quite profound in that way mm, and quite beautiful. Mm, it's very touching. It's lovely. Um, the back cover of Fury says this. This is a story of becoming heroic in a culture which doesn't see heroism in the shape of a girl. 
which I just love. I love that statement. And when I read it, I remembered reading your beautiful novel, Captain Starlight's Apprentice. And to me, that's also about heroism and, and ordinary heroism. Um, so clearly a, a theme for you. Do you think that perhaps resilience is a kind of heroism because, you know, it's sort of just um, determinedly holding on to hope for a better future or something like that? Oh, my gosh, so much. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. And I think it's, I love that you brought up um, Captain Starlight's Apprentice because I think that book is a sort of, in my head, was a reworking of the Odyssey was very clear that it's a reworking of the Odyssey. I'm kind of, you know, I name someone as the Athene of the Antipodes. It's, but I kind of set against this um, female bushranger who was a circus trick rider and the star of bushranger films, who was inspired by a, a real woman. So she's kind of living out a sort of male version of heroism, which effectively as a young woman, I did have in my head, you know, the sort of Kerouac. And I set her against this woman who um, was a British immigrant who had postnatal depression, who was sort of, who, you know, spends quite a lot of the book in a coma. What wow, the way to do dynamism, you know, um, which, which is why I needed the, the heroic bushranger figure. And one of the conscious questions I had to myself was what if heroism is actually getting up and getting on with it? So, that book, which is one of my favourite novels of mine, actually, so thank you again for mentioning it, um, it that, uh, which is actually going to be, just as a little aside, is there Tableau Tales are doing a new edition with a foreword by Pip Williams, who did um, Dictionary of Lost Words. So I kind of love that that book has been pulled back up for those sorts of reasons. So thinking about that now with that question, I'm thinking, oh, I sort of knew that Captain Starlight's Apprentice was autobiographical because my mother had postnatal depression. So I thought it was about her. It was a way of thinking about her. But now I'm thinking, oh, yeah, of course. It was kind of my story, that, that kind of shaking off of the different kinds of heroism and thinking, allowing myself to know, to understand as a young woman, what heroism looks like doesn't require you know, the knight and the horse and the windmills and the swords. Heroism may well be, yeah, pulling together enough hope to keep yourself moving. And often I think that's, that's the, the hugest work. I mean, I think for writers, it's often, you know, I too often say to young writers, a lot of the work is hope. A lot of the work is, is having the, the courage to hope that you can do this thing, which is impossible. You're making a whole world from nothing. Of course, it's impossible. You're not magic, except you are. You have to be. And that's the heroism. So, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> you mentioned Kerouac just now. Um, and I'm pretty sure you carried a Kerouac book with you. You had a backpack, mostly filled with books, that you carried with you all the way from Newcastle to northern New Northern Queensland. Can you just tell us a bit about what role books and story played for you, mm. you know, at that time? Because you actually talk about your relationship with words and reading, even from a very young age, and describe them as making a ladder to climb you out of the well. 
Yeah. Um, I carried, I feel like I carried books physically in this oversized backpack. Uh, a ridiculous number. When I saw the, the film version of Wild and little tiny Reese Witherspoon falling over with a backpack, I very much had that. I mean, not, not too dissimilar. I'm quite short. It was a big old backpack and it was full of books. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and it was from Sydney to, to, to Darwin and then back down the, the coast. It was a long way. Um, but of course, what I was really doing was carrying those words in me that they were making me they were forming me so there was a kind of physical muscle being built or you know partly by the lifting of those those words but there was an internal muscle being built which was the result of a lifetime of reading that was kind of all I had in a way all I had was was this resource which was built from um yeah from from a lifetime of People often talk about, you know, I learned to live through story and I didn't feel that it was quite that for me. I didn't feel that it was quite story, the arc of story. It wasn't the sort of that. It was to do with words specifically, the power of naming, the power of giving precise um, clarity to, you know, to situations and events. I understood that that's what writing was for and that's what reading was for, that it allowed you to name and kind of diffuse power and, and to make yourself larger than it because you're the one who'd named it. Um, there's one, there's one uh, moment in the book where I'm referring to a memory from, from childhood and I was on the boat. <laughs> I'd taken these big fat journals big hardback journals which I, I kept I still have with me all these years later um, big heavy ones and so I was writing constantly in these journals and I had this moment in in the book where I'm kind of referring to what those words can do for me in terms of the past and the present um, and I say but I don't have a machete. I don't have a sword. I don't have a knife. I just have words, thousands and thousands of them. And each time I swing another one now, decades after all this, I feel my stomach tighten and the fear rise. It wasn't the first time I'd wished I'd held my tongue and not the last time I wished I'd kept my eyes closed. There's purpose in letting things lie, reason in letting the silt settle. Mm, lovely, lovely. Um, what a resource those journals must have been for you. Absolutely. Um, they, well, they both were um, and they weren't because I had, as this sort of 20-year-old woman, I, you know, I was reading a lot of those um, very pretentious young um, you know, the books that everyone in the 80s was supposed to read. <laughs> that I mean, there was the overhang of Kerouac and all of that. They, so, so you were supposed to have read those books. Um, you know, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. The kind of, it was all very, very male-centred. And, and I would say a lot of quite pretentious writing. Um, 
So some of the journals, when I read them through, what they revealed to me, you know, there was there was a bit of trying it on stylistically. There, there were pages of just, oh, my God, a little bit less of the, the rhythm, the schmithm, the dippity dabbity doody, and a little more of the what can you see? Where are you? What can you smell? What's happening, kid? You know? <laughs> But occasionally, yeah, there, there was a sort of record, but it was, of course, inevitably, not the way I would write now, a lot of internal. And of course, at that age, almost by definition, you know, well, certainly for me anyway, I was immersed in the internal world. Part of what was happening in that period was being pulled out of my cloudy internal world to connect with the external and understand that I was part of it. But the writing, therefore, for the first um, for the first couple of journals, there's these big A4 journals. They're big. Um, they're probably the first two are really internal. So, so that's what I mean when I kind of go I'm reading them and thinking, okay, I understand your feelings, you know, but oh, <laughs> I don't really understand where you are. And I would quite like to go back in time and just get you to keep a little bit of more accurate record. But yeah, they, there was, um, they were helpful in terms of getting a real sense of where I was and that trajectory from cloud to clarity, actually, and from sort of, you know, mess to muscle. Um, I just have to use a bit of alliteration now as I've done it the first time. I have to kind of back it up with a second time. Um, and, and they did they were helpful in terms of just checking hang on where was I I did I did date them most of the time not every time there's bits on the boat that are just like uh September question mark I mean I really just it's a whole period where I have no idea what day it is what month it is um but I was able to kind of figure out okay roughly when was that and did we go to Bonaparte after or before those things were really useful in just checking but but I'd keep a very different kind of record now <laughs> of course 30 years later. Tell me were there any memoirs that as you were writing gave you some sort of I don't know inspiration or that you had in mind in some way? Yeah I mean I when I when I realised that I was writing um, memoir, I I began to read memoir, possibly for the, I, mean, I think I had, it's not that I'd not read memoir in the past, but I hadn't sorted out. So I did do a bit of seeking out. Um, and I was, I was kind of, I knew that I was after a particular hard-edged voice I knew that I didn't want the sort of soft internal cloudiness of the 20-year-old journals <laughs> um, so I I was sort of reading I think partly for that I was read I read Maggie Nelson all oh, the two Maggies as I think of it Maggie O'Farrell and Maggie Nelson quite different voices um, you know, of course, I read Wild. I think I'd already read Wild. That wasn't what I was after in terms of voice, but it did certainly have that idea of the the wilderness helping you to form yourself. The wilderness providing an opportunity to um, 
to rethink. But of course, I was writing wilderness, which was both absolute wilderness, but also industrial machine. So in, in that way, it was, it was more sort of, um, you know, memoir of, of, of a kind of, of work. <laughs> um, so I'm just trying to think what other ones I, I read in that time. Um, yeah, <laughs> my brain's my brain's kind of turning turning to marshes. I think I I did read a lot, and I was really conscious of of kind of wanting to see what was possible in that in that world. You know what 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 excited me and what um, what didn't. You know, I mean, of course, I read um, the Liars Club. You know, I I sort of read you know, all of the memoirs that I thought were, had, had had an impact. But I read kind of looking for something in particular. And it, and in a strange way, although it's really different territory, it was the red parts, Maggie Nelson, that, that gave me more of a sense of, hmm, that's sort of the territory I want in terms of voice. And um, did, did you always know you were going to sort of have that retrospective, you know, Catherine now looking back at Casey then, did you know you were always going to have that? No. Um, no, I didn't really. I, I, I mean, the first thing I wrote, um, well, the very first things I wrote were, were kind of early memories. I wasn't sure whether they were even, I didn't know what I was writing then or whether they would be long in this book or whether they were something else. Um, the first thing I wrote when I kind of thought, this is what I'm doing, this book was actually the bit that ends up at the end, but I thought it was the first page of the book. So I, I kind of had a sense that there was a return, you know, that there was a, because it seemed important to me to, to be able to say, I made it out without making it the story of making it out. You know, I wanted very much to end with the implication of stepping off into the future. I guess perhaps in that way, that was a little bit of a nod to Wilde, you know, where she has that moment of coming back. Um, so I wanted that, um, yeah, this, I, heaven forbid, as someone, you know, at an event, someone, well, actually a couple of people have said to me, you know, will you write the memoir of what happens next? And, you know, I've kind of gone, oh, my God. God, you know, the Oxford years, can you imagine? No, I will not be writing that book. I could think, frankly, of nothing worse, nothing I would less, you know, the, I, I would not want to read that book. There are a billion copies of versions of that book. And frankly, the fetishizing of that world, we're done with, I'm done with. So no, but I wanted a sense that What I what I am thinking about is, I have a very dear friend who's a is a very um, very well known British writer. When we were young writers, she was a poet at that time, and I got my first ever um, gig as a as a, a writing fellow. Um, I think I. <laughs> I'd maybe I was about to publish my first novel. I don't even know if I had published. It was pure chutzpah. I'd written some plays, um, and she came to do a reading. And at that time, she used to physically shake, she, and which she dealt with by 
taking beta blockers eventually and then lowering, lowering them. Now, you know, all these years later, you would never know any of this. But as she stood up, she started to shake and she dealt with it by saying to the audience in a way that I thought was masterful. I mean, you know, we were babies really at the time. But she said to this audience, oh, you need to know that I have this physical thing going on where I shake. I'm fine. You don't need to worry about me. This is just something that's happening in my body. And then got on with the reading. And by kind of saying that, what she did was she allowed the audience to relax because they weren't worried about her. So I kind of wanted that. I wanted a thing that was saying, you don't need to worry. I'm more than okay. This is, this is a story. The way when you're telling a story to children or something, when you say, this is safe, okay. So now we can go into the woods because you know it's a safe story. I wanted that quality of Ben. And also because I, I knew that I wanted to write about joy that I wanted to write about resilience. So, yeah, I kind of had to have that little nod to the future um, self. I loved that. And it did give me a sense of safety as I was reading some quite hard moments and hard moments that made me reflect on my own life because I grew up in Newcastle as well, <laughs> you know, in a similar era. So it was like some of those experiences were very relatable. But I felt that safety and that sense of hope Be I mean because I know you and I know what your life has become since but mostly because of the writing and I think anyone who can write like this is really really more than okay like so it was just built into the work it, it was fantastic I, I loved that sense the way I had just that hope built in yeah it was fantastic um I mean, I've said uh, when I've posted about Fury on my social media, I've described Fury as a masterclass in writing memoir. And I really think it is because it's, to me, at least it seems, you know, technically really, really controlled, but there's an enormous um, freedom and liveliness and flow in the writing, which is really lyrical. Um, and one of the things you do is move us back and forward in time. I mean, it's your memories as you were or as Casey was on the trawler remembering things, but it's a very seamless reading experience, which I don't think is particularly easy to achieve. Um, that moving back and forth in time can be kind of um, a bit discombobulating. So I'm just curious, just from a really sort of craft point of view, how long it took you to create that structure and really get it in an order that worked and figure out transitions. Can you talk us through that process? Well, okay. So, so firstly, I'll, I'll, I'll just reference social media myself. Um, I did a, a little, you know, those when you get the reminders from Facebook or whatever, I had a little sort of reminder yesterday or the day before yesterday, I think, which was a photo of me sort of lying down, basically having a tantrum. And I've got this sort of a page of fury with notes on it over my head. And I was having a tantrum because that was the edit stage and it was exactly to do with that. I remember it really. <laughs> it was two years ago, two years ago yesterday. Um, and it was to do with that moment of moving things around and trying to get it right. So, yes, on one hand, that actually was difficult. But I had a very clear, I had two things really clear. One is... And this is a craft thing. Um, what's your container? 
you know what's the what's your what's the time um carrier so i was really clear that this is not a a, a story that's happening in multi time frames there's one unity of time and it's the unity of time begins when I get in that taxi where I was assaulted and then leave, you know, after a, a trial and it ends when I get off the fishing trawler. So that's the time unity. And once, once I had that, once I was clear about that, then anything that folds out of that um, is a memory. So I kind of also wanted to replicate, you know, the sort of form and content matching idea. I wanted to replicate that. Actually, what was happening, what does happen in that kind of environment is a combination of really full-on physical work, deep muscle exhaustion, which does, I think, a particular thing for the brain. You know, there's a re reason that a lot of religious traditions put you to physical work. It is good for the the soul it's good for the mind it's good for the heart you know so that was happening it that that created a kind of um physical release and the contrast this is very particular to being on a trawler between really full-on extreme work and noise and deep deep silence and stillness that's a really particular combination and that meant that in those moments of deep stillness, unbidden came memories. So I just simply wanted the reader to come through that I wanted them to be on the boat with me. I wanted them to be in my little bunk with my hand against the fiberglass kind of brain-like wall, flipping back into unbidden memories with me so it's not that I wanted you to feel that you were um, in a different time in story terms I wanted you to feel that a memory had arisen and again that 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 sort of you know it's both the metaphor and the actual real event of trawling you know, that's what happens. You're trawling mud up, you're trawling stuff up and things come up. When you trawl in a, in a fishing trawler, you pull, <laughs> you pull a lot of mess up. And some of that mess is what, you, what you're looking for. You know, like panning for gold. And in this case, the gold was prawns. <laughs> and that same thing I think was happening then and I think actually often does happen in terms of memory. The way memory comes is often physical. Well, usually is, you know, it's, it's in the body before it's in the mind. So it was that kind of rising unbidden and some of these memories are what I'm looking for. Some of these memories have something to teach me and something that I can come to understand and then let go of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that metaphor of the the trawler pulling up all the muck as well. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty messy. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, you said earlier that you felt like you'd come to an understanding of that period before you started writing. When you talk to memoirists who are starting out on the journey of writing their memoir, do you 
I mean, what advice would you give them around that, around waiting a certain period, particularly if they're writing about trauma? Look, generally, I would say for your own safety, if nothing else, I think I generally would say um, I would advise waiting, but I don't think there's a rule. You know, I think it worked, it was right for me because I wasn't just writing about a set of events. I was writing about a kind of a wisdom and joy and transformation that happened as a result of those events. So that required distance. It required a kind of wisdom that I just didn't have at, at 30. I didn't have, you know, for, for years and, uh, until, you know, it took me years to, to get the the positioning that's not true for everyone I don't think I would say that for everyone I think some kind some sorts of memoirs you know maybe you maybe it's okay to to get it down straight away I think I would generally say in craft terms if you're going to get it down in the immediacy of the events you know then maybe let it sit for a year or so, then come back to it. Because what I think if you're writing about trauma, you don't, I don't think you, you want to read, you don't want to traumatize your reader. That should not be the aim. So I think getting clear on what your aim is as a writer is really important. And the aim that you have if you're writing when you're still effectively traumatized is a personal aim that's about you getting something down and yeah go for it if that is going to help you get through those experiences but that's a different aim from a writerly aim which is what you are gifting to the reader and I think yeah getting that kind of clarity and distance is quite important I think hmm. you you write about the importance for you of um naming what happened and claiming your your fury and your story um and to me that <clears throat> particularly in relation to sexual assault that really resonates what with what Australian of the Year Grace Tame is urging survivors of child sexual abuse to do to speak out and mm. tell their story and I'm wondering if you've heard from many readers who've read the memoir and had similar experiences or you know met people at launches and so on although in time of COVID, I guess there haven't been those launches. Yeah, I mean, I did, before we locked down, there were a few events. And yes, I did. I did, actually. It, it was startling to me how many, um, there was one woman who came and said that she'd been, so I've had it both from younger women, um, uh, you know, it, who, who speak about their own experiences, which has been, uh, you know, challenging. But on the other hand, I see that they are speaking in a way that I was not and women of my age were not. But I also have had women my age and older um, speak about, about really similar experiences. And one woman who came and said, in terms of the, the initial assault, the, the assault that I begin with, the assault that, that really led me to um, skip town and become a decadent, uh, which was an assault, a sexual assault by a taxi driver. And one woman at a, a reading in Sydney came over and said, the exact same thing happened to me. 
And she said, I won in the same year. And she said, I wonder if it was the same driver. Yeah. So, yeah, so that that's, I did kind of do, before the book came out, I, I, I had sort of been warned that there might be a bit of that. And so I did try and do some, um, some work around that beforehand um, because, you know, that's, it's a lot. Other, other people's stories are a lot in that way and there's a lot of them. But I think, you know, I've been asked quite a lot about hope and I do think one of the reasons that, you know, when the whole kind of me too thing started to happen and, and all these, let's be honest, men were astonished. Surely not. Surely not. It can't be everyone. And, you know, most women were going, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the thing that, that we weren't doing was, was connecting the dots. You know, once you start going, oh, okay, well, that was me too, literally, then you kind of pull the scab up. You start to um, to allow something different to happen, I think. And to, you know, you can't fight an invisible enemy. If no one's saying what's going on, then the person who is on the receiving end of power abuses um, is likely to, as, as is common, absorb that shame. The more we speak, I mean, this is a general response to shame. The more you speak to it, the more you shine a light on it, the less power it has. Do, do you, are you hopeful that things really are changing, that, you know, society is more willing to make men accountable for their behaviour? Or do you feel like we're just at the beginning of something? I think both. I think, think the, the conversation has clearly changed. Um, and, and I think men are speaking too. I think that, that has an impact. But I think it's a long conversation. You know, when we look at the Catholic Church, look how long that conversation is, is, is going on for. I think, I, I think we're, we're kind of at the beginning. Yeah, I do. I do. And, and what we are seeing too, I think, is a sort of, you know, the inevitable backlash. I mean, it's slightly disheartening. I mean, I remember being 25 and having conversations with girlfriends where we would say, oh, look, what we're seeing is the death throes of patriarchy. You know, it's fine. They, you know, things have changed. Well, actually, of course, change is slow. So I think, I think one of the things that's happening is a kind of a real escalation of men realising that female story is important and female experience is important and that female experience is particular, that growing up female has its own um, difficulties that, they perhaps have been oblivious to there's a sort of moment which we we talked about um before we we started talking but um uh before we started recording but I'm, I'm going to just read a little bit from from fury which is about the kind of 
a sort of what I was perceiving as a sort of interspecies, the sort of understanding of pain across species and, and my version of the world being perhaps only one limited version of the world. So the moment is kind of just, we've just pulled up a net and we're, we're dropping the net into, into the tray on the boat. I watched the tumble of faces of beings of beauty and my bubble blistered, fested, seeping something poisonous into me like pus. Everything had slowed as the nets lifted, but then it turned, escalating into a frenzy of noise and speed and action. The catch tumbled to the tray, thousands of fish, scores of species, all caught up with weed and clump and cockle shells. I tried to feel nothing, to be hard, but I watched a cod the size of my own body, its cartoonish lips fat and curved into a serious frown. I knew I was holding everything up, but the cod was brown and speckled grey, its wide eyes bulging right at me, and I must not anthropomorphise, I must not anthropomorphise, but I swear it gazed right at me, right into me, with fear or desperation or the hope for help. Did cod feel hope? Desperation, surely. I must not anthropomorphize. But was the capacity to feel solely human? Then solely which sort of human? Those boys with their cars and their laughter and their door locking, bra flicking, dick flashing, those boys, I must assume, believed my feelings to be different from or less than theirs. The cod's mouth opened, lips back tail flipping beautiful and I have to say there are so many passages in this book that are just lyrical exquisite writing there's the power of the story and then there's just incredibly beautiful writing um thank you it's been such a pleasure speaking with you Catherine um, and you thank you Sarah. on behalf of Byron Writers Festival thank you so much Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.